And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God, Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The father that he swore to our the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of the, our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of their tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our hearts desire the warmth of your love, and our minds are searching for the light of your word. Increase our, long, our longing for Christ our Savior, and give us the strength to grow in love, that the dawn of his coming may find us rejoicing in his presence and welcoming the light of his truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. Have you ever wanted something um, for so long and so badly that when it finally comes, perhaps late in the story of your life or of your longing, that you can't believe or accept that it has actually happened? That ever happened to you? That's what uh, had happened to the singer of our song this morning, a man named Zechariah. This morning we're going to study his song recorded for us by Luke in his gospel, written in the context of that experience in his life of for many, many years desperately longing for and wanting something, and then when it's finally given to him, he can't actually believe that it has happened. We're continuing in our Advent season, our Christmas season, looking at these ancient Christmas carols from the first couple of chapters of Luke's gospel. Last week, we looked at um, Mary's song, which is called the Magnificat, and this week we're going to look at this song found in Luke chapter 1 and the verses that were just read for you so well by Nathan, uh, the song of Zechariah, which is traditionally called the Benedictus the Benedictus. And just as a little bit of background here, the story behind this song is really quite moving. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist, and he is the husband of Elizabeth, whom we met briefly last week when she and Mary interacted. And by the time Zechariah sings this song, he and his wife Elizabeth are old. They're old, and they're past the age of childbearing. Luke tells us that they are godly, that they are righteous people, and yet perhaps the great longing, the great want of their life has been to be a mom and a dad, and that has not been granted to them in the normal pattern of human events and the normal timing in which we would expect that. So it's been a great pain in their lives. But an angel back in Luke chapter 1 has visited Zechariah when he was serving in the temple. At this point, he's sort of a washed up old priest who's just kind of going about his duty with this big hole in his heart because his prayer for a son has not been answered by God. But the angel Gabriel visits him and tells him that his wife Elizabeth is going to have a son and that his name will be John, John the Baptist. 
Now, Zechariah is a righteous man, but Luke tells us that Zechariah doesn't believe that this is the case. He questions Gabriel. And as a result of that, God, through Gabriel, strikes Zechariah mute and deaf, most likely, for the entire duration of his wife Elizabeth's pregnancy. So for nine months, think about this, for nine months, Zechariah is living inside his own head. For nine months, he's unable to communicate or be communicated to. For nine months, he's forced to sit and stir on the fact that he didn't believe God when God told him he was finally going to answer his prayer. For nine months, he's had to reflect over and over and over again in his mind about what God, in fact, is doing in his life. And when his son, John, is born, they name him John, and the first thing that Zechariah does after nine months of silence, after nine months of being trapped in his own mind, the first thing that he does is compose and sing this song that we have in verses 68 through 79. It's a song in the wake of the birth of his only child, late in life. And interestingly enough, Despite that fact, the majority of the song is not about his child, but about Mary's child, Jesus. Really, this song is a testimony to what God had taught him by his grace during his nine months of being mute. Can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? Zechariah's response in this song is beautiful. It's loaded with all manner of Old Testament Bible imagery, and we can't possibly cover all of it today, but I do want to try and sum up the main idea of the Benedictus of Zechariah's song as we reflect on the meaning of Christmas. I want to try and sum it up like this. Here's the main idea. Zechariah sings about God visiting his people to bring salvation and calls us to prepare for his coming. Okay? Zechariah sings about God visiting his people to bring salvation and calls us to prepare for his coming. So there's three words that will make up our three points this morning. I want to talk to you about visitation, salvation, and preparation. We find all three of those words in this song. Visitation, salvation, and preparation. If you want to take notes, there's your outline. Very simple. Let's go. Okay? First, we see visitation. This is a song about visitation. The word visit is used twice in the song to serve as sort of a thematic bookend. Look there in verse 68, we see it once, and then we see it again in verse 78. Now that is a very significant word, the word visit, in the Old Testament. In Bible language and in Bible history, when God visits the world, he's visiting the world for one of two reasons. He's either visiting the world in judgment He's coming to destroy, or he's visiting the world in mercy, and he's coming to save. So, for example, in the ancient book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 19, we read that God visits Sodom and Gomorrah, those famous ancient wicked cities. That would be an example of God coming to destroy. You guessed it. Things do not go well for the Sodomites or the people that live in Gomorrah. Another example in the Old Testament of God visiting his people to show mercy, to bring salvation, would be the Exodus, when God comes to rescue his ancient people, the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Either way, a visit from God 
is something, if you know the scriptures and if you believe the scriptures, it's something that the scriptures call us to anticipate. It's something that the scriptures call us to make ourselves ready for, to prepare for. C.S. Lewis in his space trilogy calls Earth the visited planet the visited planet. And he's making the same point in narrative fashion that I want to make here. God in Christmas is visiting this world in an ultimate and final way. That's what Zechariah is singing about. In the birth of Jesus of Nazareth to the Virgin Mary, God is visiting us in the sense that God is God is putting skin on. God is becoming a human like us in every way except without sin. God is entering into our world. He's entering into our story. The theological word that theologians have used for that is condescension. God is condescending. He is stooping down and making himself known by becoming a human in the person of Jesus Christ. Christmas means that God has visited humanity in the form of a fragile helpless, needy baby. But that baby, we know from the scripture, had another nature that was a divine nature. So that at one and the same time, he is both fragile and weak and yet also ruling and sustaining the universe. And Zechariah understands here, after what God has taught him in the last nine months, that this is a great visitation of mercy. We see there in verse 78 that he says, because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. It's a visitation of light, a visitation of truth. Jesus' birth is compared to the sun rising in the east after a long, dark night. Christmas is about God visiting us. Now, as we meditate and reflect on Christmas together, in these weeks here at Christ Church, um, I want us to understand again that this is such an essential point that helps us to grasp in our heads and in our hearts the big picture of what Christianity really is all about. Uh, if you're not a Christian or if you don't know if you're a Christian or if you're new to Christianity, I really want you to get this because this is one of the things that I think makes Christianity uniquely beautiful. Um, in most religions... We meet God or gain access to God by taking some sort of pilgrimage to visit him. So, for example, in Islam, one of the five pillars of Islam is that any devout Muslim must make a pilgrimage to Mecca. That's one of the things you must do if you're going to be seen in Allah's favor. And most religions are like that. Religion in, in itself is, is really about how we can gain access to God who wants to see our efforts and our eagerness. So practically, what that might mean for you today is that if you view God in this way, that religion, your relationship with God is all about you trying to go visit him, you know, you trying to get access to him. If you view God that way, then you'll go to church and you'll try your best to be moral. You might even listen to this sermon this morning because you want to, you know, quote, visit God. And make sure that you are worthy. But here's what I want you to get. The gospel, Christianity, the religious theme of the Christian message, the Christmas story, is not about us trying to go visit God. In fact, Christianity completely inverts that. 
The gospel is about God coming to visit us, you see. Christianity turns that well-known religious theme of the truly devout taking a pilgrimage to be with God, it turns that theme upside down on its head. It tells us the story, rather, of God taking a pilgrimage, of God taking a pilgrimage to be with us. God is the great visitor for whom our hearts are to prepare. God comes to us, you see. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. That's one of the ways to view Christianity from sort of a big picture. That's a big picture of grace, a big picture of the good news of the gospel. God approaches people who are unworthy, and he loves them. He doesn't wait for us to approach him with our own worth. You see, in Christianity, it is not about our striving. It is about his saving. It's not about our striving. It's about his saving. And really, that takes us to the next point in Zechariah's song. We see that he talks about a visitation. Secondly, an important word that he uses is salvation. He's very clear in the lyrics of this ancient Christmas carol that God visits us for a particular purpose. Look there in verse 68 again. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and what? Redeemed. Visited and redeemed his people. 69, he's raised up a horn of salvation. 77, 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, he has brought knowledge of salvation. 72, he has come to show mercy promised to our fathers. God comes into this world as a true human in the person of Jesus Christ for the purpose of saving us for the purpose of redeeming us. And as I mentioned, this song is chock full of Old Testament language and imagery. One thing we can take as an aside is that all of the Old Testament is about that message. It's about God visiting this world to save and redeem us. Just one example of sort of the Old Testament language is there in verse 69 when Zechariah sings that God has raised up a horn. You see that? A horn of salvation for us in the house of David. Now that's sort of a foreign image for a lot of us. What in the world does that mean? Well, a horn was a common image of of power in the Old Testament. Why? Well, because ancient Israel was an agrarian society. And perhaps a common thing that people saw, or at least they knew about, was when big, powerful rams or goats would fight one another. Maybe you've seen a clip of this like on YouTube or something of two rams in Montana. Maybe you've seen this in person, like going at it. What happens when they, how they fight is they collide head to head, right? It's like, you know, their concussion stuff is probably way worse than the NFL, right? They collide really, really hard and all of their power, all of the force of their, you know, one ton bodies are concentrated in the horns, And so the horn is the way that they display their power, their control, their might. And so in the Old Testament, an ancient Jewish person would have seen that word horn and immediately thought of the power of a ram trying to destroy its enemy. And what the gospel is telling us here, what Zechariah is singing about, is that God has come to visit his people and to redeem us by making his sovereign power and might, clear, and evident to everyone. 
I mean, notice the language here. God is the active participant in working to bring redemption and salvation. He is the one doing it. And we are passive. God is presented as the Savior. God is presented as the Redeemer. God is the one who raises up a horn of salvation. He is the one who has the power. He is the one who takes the initiative. He is the one who chooses to bestow grace. He is the one who comes to us. God is the one who does it from beginning to end. Notice that Zechariah sings that he comes to save us, verse 71, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. In other words, the powerful oppressors of God's people are going to be wiped out and demolished as a result of the coming of Christ. Now, that would have been a great comfort for the people of God in Jesus' day, in the day when Luke wrote this story, because the Roman Empire had abused and oppressed and persecuted the people of God for many, many decades at this point. And today that news is a comfort to millions of our brothers and sisters in the faith who were oppressed by the mighty and the strong because of their faith. Christmas tells us that though they suffer now and though we suffer now, God will one day make all things new. God will one day make everything right that is wrong with his perfect and holy justice. That's what it means for God to come and visit his people with redemption. So there's sort of a physical political tenor to this song. But fundamentally what God comes to rescue us from is not an oppressive government. Fundamentally what God comes to rescue us from is not political persecution. It's not economic poverty. Our main problem is not a lack of education or access to societal benefits. Zechariah is very clear along with the rest of the scriptures that our main problem the thing that we need redemption from the most, the thing that God must rescue us out of is our problem of sin. You see, that's what we need real help in. Jesus came to rescue us in power out of the bondage to sin. That is, well, that's the main point of Christianity. It's the main point of Christmas. Listen, do you understand that your main problem is sin? Now, what does that even mean? Sin is really one of the most misunderstood words, both by Christians and non-Christians. You know, sin is not primarily an action. Rather, primarily, sin is a condition. It's the condition of all of our hearts that makes us, deep, deep down, want to be God. The reason that you so often feel frustrated or angry or afraid or vindictive and jealous is because to some degree you want to be in control and you want to rule, but you cannot because you're not really God. (laughs) So sin brings all of these other consequences like shame and guilt and fear, and wicked behavior, and perverse thinking, and selfishness, and pride, etc. It's, it's the great cause of pain and unhappiness in your life. And it's the great cause of pain and brokenness in this world. And it's what Jesus comes to rescue us from. So how does he do that? How does Jesus rescue us from sin? How does he bring the salvation that Jesus sin, sings about, or that Zachariah sings about here? 
Well, the scriptures tell us very clearly that sin demands a punishment from a just God. If sin is rebellion against a good king, and if the king is truly good and truly just, then he must squash that rebellion. And so it's very clear in the scripture that either we as sinners will be punished for our rebellion or someone else is going to be punished in our place. And the gospel, the good news of Christmas, the good news of Christianity is that God sent Jesus to take the punishment of sin that you and I deserve on the cross so that we can be forgiven. That's why Zechariah sings here about the forgiveness of sins. That's what salvation is all about, according to verse 77. You see, God came so that he himself would bear the penalty of your rebellion against him. And so that when Jesus dies, God is being just in rightly punishing human sin, but he's also being merciful in not punishing you, but punishing Jesus, the innocent, spotless lamb of God who willingly offers himself in your place instead. You see, the good news of Christmas is that Jesus came to bring salvation by bearing the curse, the penalty, The anger and hostility of God, which is a good and righteous anger against rebellion and sin, he came to take what we deserve and then to give us what he earns, which is righteousness, life, peace with God, and hope. You see, Jesus Christ has visited this world as God made man to save us from the greatest oppressor, sin itself. And we are called, even in this very song, to prepare to receive that message. And so let's look at that thirdly. There's a visitation, there's salvation, and thirdly, the song is about preparation. Really, beginning in verse 76, the song becomes not just a song, but a prophecy too. Here, Zechariah begins singing about his son, John the Baptist, this man, this little boy who has just been born to Elizabeth. And if you read ahead a few chapters in Luke, you'll see that that the main role in life for John the Baptist is to prepare the way, to get ready for Jesus to come. That's exactly what Zechariah is prophesying about his newborn son here. Look at what he says. He will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. So Zechariah here is saying that John is going to come and help people prepare, help people get ready for this Savior that is to come. He tells us a little bit later in the gospel to repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, when I was a student at Baylor, um, my freshman year, I lived in the dorms and um, I had two roommates, and at Baylor, because it's a godly and righteous institution, um, girl, girls are only allowed to, allowed to visit the men's dorms once a week for a couple of hours on Sunday afternoon. And uh, I lived in Penland Hall, room 209, and um, most of the time you need a gas mask, like to walk through those halls and stay, like, w- without dying of cancer 10 years later. You know, it's a bad place to be. It's horribly dirty. It's what you would expect with a bunch of 18-year-old boys living in one place, consolidated together. You know, there's green and brown things growing in the shower. There's like living things in the bathroom. It's, it's bad. It's bad. But every Sunday from 2 to 5, Baylor girls show up. 
Every Sunday from 2 to 5, we know that the girls are going to come visit. They're invited into our rooms, and guess what the guys would do from like 12, probably like 145 to 155? (laughs) We would prepare. We would clean. I mean, the way 18-year-old boys clean, which is like lift up the bottom of the bed and kick stuff under it. We would do the best we could to get ready because, you know, we were slobs, but we didn't want them to know at least the depth of our slobbery, right? And so we would get ready, and the girls would come through the hall, and I guess instead of needing a gas mask, they, they were able to just survive by holding their breath for five or ten minutes until they got into a room. You know, it, was, it wasn't as, quite as terrible as it was normally because we would try to get ready. We knew that important people <laughs> were coming to visit, and we did our best. We made every effort that an 18-year-old college freshman living in a dorm could to get ready. That's, you know, that's really what John existed to do is to call people to get ready for an important visitor who is Jesus. He called people to, to make way, to prepare their hearts, just like we've already sung in Joy to the World. Let every heart prepare him room. That's what John's life mission was. It was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. And as we read this story this morning, as we think about this song this morning, I want us to remember that the message of John is still just as relevant and just as important today. Just as the ancient people of Israel needed to prepare for the king's coming, so you and I now need to prepare. So the message of this song is still meaningful. It's still life-changing. It's still important for us to hear. And what John's message was, what the Bible's message is, what God is telling each one of us right now this very morning is this, the way to prepare for the coming of the king is to recognize our sin and our need of forgiveness and to turn to Jesus in faith. You see, that is what it means to understand Christmas. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to to be a Christian. How can you prepare this morning? That should be the question pulsing in your heart. How can I prepare for the coming of Jesus? Because he is coming again. Whether you're a a Christian right now or not, all of us can do what joy to the world says. We can let our hearts prepare him room. How? Two things real quick. The first thing you must do to prepare is repent of your sins. That was the message of John. That's the message of the scripture. We must acknowledge that we are sinners, that we have rebelled against God, and that we deserve his displeasure. We must acknowledge that we are, by nature, self-centered and self-motivated, and that we often want to be the king of our own lives and not let God be the king. We must acknowledge and tell God that we are sorry for that, and that we intend to, by faith, make him the king in our hearts that he already is. We must repent, and then secondly, we must believe the gospel. We must trust that Jesus Christ was born into this world to do exactly what this old carol says, to bring forgiveness of sins, to bring redemption, to bring salvation. We must trust that through his sacrificial death on the cross, he is taking the punishment for our sin. He is taking the punishment for our pride. He is taking the punishment for our rebellion and offering us complete pardon before God. Because God is merciful. Because God loves each of us so deeply, he offers Jesus as a substitute for what we deserve. 
and we receive that forgiveness. We receive that pardon. We receive that mercy and grace. We receive a new status of just before God simply by believing that Jesus has done it for us. That is the way to prepare. What are you doing this Christmas to get ready? Sure, you can put up a Christmas tree. You can hang Christmas lights. You can go look through Windcrest or downtown San Antonio at the beautiful lights all around. You can get ready for family to arrive. You can read the Christmas story with your family. But the most important thing to do to prepare for Christmas is make sure that you have repented of your sin and turn to Jesus in faith, acknowledging that he has done all that is necessary to save you. Are you prepared? Christmas means that God has visited his people. He's visited his people in the birth of Jesus to bring salvation. Christmas is a summons for us to prepare to receive the gift of salvation in our hearts by faith. B.B. King, uh, the great blues musician, wrote a song that has been redone recently in the last 15 or 20 years by U2, and it's called When Love Comes to Town, and uh, it's a great song. I'm going to read the first stanza. I'm tempted to sing it, but I'm going to pass on singing it and read it. Here's what King and Bono write. I was a sailor. I was lost at sea. I was under the waves before love rescued me. I was a fighter. I could turn on a thread, but now I stand accused of the things I've said. When, love's, when love comes to town, I'm going to jump on that train. When love comes to town, I'm going to catch that flame. I was wrong to ever let you down, but I did what I did before love came to town. Love has come to town in the birth of Jesus Christ. And he calls you, he calls me to turn from sin and turn to him in faith. For he always forgives those who come to him. Do you see your need? Do you see his provision? Do you feel the weight and burden of sin and guilt and the freedom and joy that he offers you freely? through forgiveness. Believe in the Christmas message. God has visited you to bring salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the love of God has come to town. He has come into our world and into our lives in the person of Jesus. Father, we thank you that you offer yourself to us as a sacrifice of atonement for sin. We thank you that in the death of Christ, we have life. We thank you that you call us very clearly to prepare for Christ to come. And Father, we ask that this morning you would help us to prepare. Whether we've repented of sin and trusted in Jesus a million times before, we ask that you would help us to do it again. Or perhaps for the first time today, we we ask that you would help us to turn from sin and turn to Jesus in faith. Thank you that you freely offer us complete pardon and rescue. Thank you that you have visited us with tender mercy from on high, like the sun rising in the sky. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.